I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Episode 3 of The Housebound Historian. We are reading Skid Road, An Informal Portrait of Seattle, which is a book written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking in New York. For Episode 3, we're still on Chapter 1. It's called Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852 to 1873. Chapter 1 is broken up into multiple parts. For this episode, we're going to read all of Part 3 and a good portion of Part 4. New York Alki was a community of seven men, five women, and twelve children living in four houses, two made of logs and two of cedar puncheons, set close together on the narrow plain between water and forest. The settlement was five months old, and Maynard soon learned most of the settlers were ready to give up. They had come to the sound country to found a town, not to farm. And though Alki Point was beautiful, offering a wide view up and down the sound, and on clear days a panorama of the Olympics to the west, it was no place to load ships. The only commodity the settlers had for export was timber, much in demand in San Francisco. But at Alki, the trees stood well back from the shore, and the beach was shallow and exposed to the wind. Eighteen years earlier, Dr. William Tolmy, the factor at the Hudson's Bay post, up sound at Nisqually, had examined the Alki Plain as a possible site for a trading post and had scratched in his journal his reasons for deciding against it. It is about a mile in length and from 100 to 150 yards in extent, raised about 30 feet above sea level, towards which it presented a steep clayey bank. Surface flat and dotted with small pines, but soil composed almost entirely of sand. At its northern extremity, the coast is indented with a bay five or six miles wide and perhaps three long, into which a river flows. The south side of the bay and river is inhabited by the Tuamish Indians, of whom we saw several parties along the coast, miserably poor and destitute of firearms. A fort well garrisoned would answer well as a trading post on the prairie where we stood. It would have an advantage of a fine prospect down the sound and a proximity to the Indians, but these would not compensate for an unproductive soil and the inconvenience of going at least one-half mile for a supply of water. A number of Americans scouted the site after Dr. Tolmy's visit. In 1841, young Lieutenant Wilkes and his naval party drew a beautiful and accurate chart of the harbor, which Wilkes named Elliott Bay in honor of the chaplain of his exploring expedition. He made no reference to the place as a possible site for commercial activities. In 1850, a skinny youngster from Iowa, 19-year-old John Holgate, paddled around Elliott Bay in an Indian canoe and went a few miles up the Duwamish River, which flows into the bay. He liked the valley so much that he chose a site to homestead, but he neglected to file papers for his claim, and while he was back east in Iowa to round up his relatives, someone else moved on to his land. Holgate had made an amusing mistake earlier the same year. He brought with him across the plains a seedling fir so that he would not be lonesome for evergreens while on the west coast. Though as a farm boy Holgate selected bottomland for his own homestead, he was the first to predict the possibilities of the harbor. Colonel Isaac Eby, who was later beheaded by Indians in revenge for the murder by someone else of one of their Thais, paddled down sound from Olympia a few weeks after Holgate. Like the Iowan, he was greatly impressed by the valley of the Duwamish. In a letter to Mike Simmons, Eby reported, The river meanders along through rich bottomland, not heavily timbered, with here and there a beautiful plain of unrivaled fertility, peering out through a fringe of vine maple, alder, or ash, or boldly presenting a view of their native richness and undying verdure. It is probable that Maynard read Eby's description of the valley southeast of New York Alki. Perhaps he even read it aloud to Simmons, for Simmons, like many other Northwest pioneers, could read little other than his name. 
The Duwamish pours from a glacier high on the northwestern slope of Mount Rainier, and after flowing 20 miles as a mountain stream, slows down in meanders, rich and brown and placid, northward toward the foothills of the Cascade Range and the highlands that form the eastern shore of Puget Sound. The valley is rich and easy to farm, though threatened and replenished by spring floods. In 1851, a man named Luther Collins gave up trying to farm the glacial silt of the Nisqually Valley at the head of the Sound and staked out a claim on the lower Duwamish in what is now Georgetown. Three friends followed him within the same month. And the footnote identifies the three friends, Joseph Maple, his son Samuel Maple, and Henry Van Asselt, a Hollander, who took a claim that includes the present site of Boeing Airfield. Collins brought his wife and daughter to the Duwamish in a scow, then went back to Nisqually to pick up his cattle. After an unsuccessful attempt to move them by scow, he hired an Indian and drove his livestock north along the beach. When Collins herded the beasts around the southern head of Elliott Bay, he found three young Americans, Lee Terry, John Lowe, and David Denny, building a log cabin. They told Collins that they had picked this as a site of a town which they would call New York after Terry's birthplace. They had come to the Sound to scout homesteads for a party recently arrived, overland, from the Midwest, and were dissatisfied with the crowded conditions in the Willamette Valley. The others were waiting south of the Columbia River. Collins tried to talk them into settling on the Duwamish, but they wouldn't hear of it. Five weeks later, on a rainy day in mid-November, the rest of the party, A.A. Denny, John N. Lowe, C.D. Boren, W.N. Bell, and their families arrived on the brig Exact, Captain Folger, after a rough passage from Portland. Three of the four women cried when the brig's boat put them ashore on the salt-smelling beach. Portland had been rude and the ship awful, but this was worse. The only habitation was a log cabin, still roofless, and the only neighbors a host of bow-legged Indians, the men wearing only buckskin breech-clouts, the women skirts of shredded cedar bark, the children naked. The sky was low and gray, the air was sharp with salt and iodine, the wind cold, but soon the women were too busy to weep. While Collins and his friends were breaking ground for their farms on the Duwamish, the New York settlers were building four houses. In December, the brig Leonesa, Captain Daniel Howard, hove to off the point. The skipper asked if the town had any timber for sale. He wanted to pick up a cargo of pilings for San Francisco. They had none cut, but they had the makings. The men promised by the time the Leonesa got back from Olympia they'd have a load ready. They did, too, and the town's line of development was fixed. It would cut lumber for export, and that meant it needed a deeper harbor. Early one morning in February, Arthur Denny, Bell, and Boren set out in an Indian canoe to find a better anchorage. They paddled north across Elliott Bay and began to take soundings at what was later called Smith's Cove. They worked back around the shore toward Alki. Bell and Boren paddled while Denny heaved the lead, using a bunch of horseshoes tied to a length of clothesline. To their delight, they found they had to stay close to shore to reach bottom at all. Deep water stretched for miles along the eastern shore. Elliott Bay was deep, but the banks were steep. The narrow beach rose to a shallow shelf, and the shelf folded into a raw clay cliff. The sides of the cliff were set and steep, and at the top stood a tangled jungle of fir. As the canoe coasted south, the bank became gentler. Denny noticed the mottled trunks of alder among the evergreens, and, after climbing the bank to investigate, quote, found a gently sloping hillside over which a fire had passed, deadening the trees. Some of these, particularly the alders, had fallen over, leaving an opening, unquote. Denny later built his house in the clearing. South of the clearing, the bluff diminished from 30 or 40 feet down to 15 to 5, then it disappeared, and they came upon a little winding tidal stream, with muddy banks and salt grass on the margin running through a tiny meadow. 
They landed and walked over to a circular knoll, 30 or 40 feet high, with steep sides. From the top of the knoll, they could look over the meadow. The only sign of habitation was an Indian house, long deserted and partly overgrown with wild roses, standing near the present corner of First Avenue South and Yesler Way. To the south, the land sloped down to marshy tide flats and the mud bars off the mouth of the Duwamish. When the explorers returned to their canoe and lowered the horseshoes again, they found that the deep water ended off the marshlands. Their city, then, would stretch along the deep water. Boren staked out a tentative claim on the low land nearest the Duwamish. Arthur Denny took the middle strip and Bell the land to the north. David Denny, who came over later to look around, decided on a narrow strip reaching from the bay to Tinas Chuck, a small lake he found about a mile from saltwater. This was the situation when Maynard arrived at New York Alki. Four of the men were ready to move to their new claims, leaving the Terries and Lowe in possession of the spit. Both groups wanted Maynard to stay with them, though it's probable that Lowe and Terry, having started a small store of their own at New York Alki, were not thrilled by the prospect of their only neighbors being a competing merchant. They didn't need to worry. Maynard thought the new town on Elliott Bay more promising than the old. But there was one trouble. He wanted some deep water frontage and as near as possible to the Indian villages on the Duwamish. He had work for the Indians to do and goods for them to buy. It was not hard to arrange. The others wanted Maynard to stay among them, quote, for the benefit a good man brings, unquote, and they moved their claims north by an eighth of a mile. Maynard measured out his claim so that it included about 300 yards of the most southerly deep water frontage. For the rest, he took marsh and hill. Part 4 So they planned a town. They planned it with the conviction that it would grow to be a great city, though they were not more confident of success than were the men who had already built Stillicum and Olympia, and the others who had found Muckleteo and Watcombe, now Bellingham, and Townsend and Port Gamble and Port Ludlow, and a score of other settlements around the Sound. For a time, their settlement was nameless, but when a clerk in Olympia tentatively called it Dewamps, the pioneers hastily got together to pick a less repulsive name. At Maynard's suggestion, they called their town Seattle, a name they adapted from that of Maynard's Indian friend Sielth. There is no trustworthy account of how the old chief took the honor. He may well have been horrified. The Indians had a superstitious dread of having their names mentioned after death. For Maynard, the first years of the new town may well have been the best years of his life. He was older than the others, richer in experience, better educated, and now he had more money. He was the town's first capitalist. He hired some Indians to help him build a place down by the Sag, as they called the lowland by the water, and within a few days he was selling goods in his new store, the Seattle Exchange, a building 18 feet long and 26 feet wide, with log sides, a shake roof, and over the front part, a low attic that Maynard used as living quarters. The store sold, according to an advertisement Maynard wrote for the paper in Olympia, quote, a general assortment of dry goods, groceries, hardware, etc., suitable for the wants of immigrants just arriving, unquote. Maynard was as interested in supplying the wants of immigrants to California as he was in supplying those of western Oregon. San Francisco, a thousand miles away by sea, was the only population center on the coast large enough to make much of a market for products of the fisheries and the forests. From the time two years earlier when the ship G.W. Kendall nosed into the sound in misguided search for icebergs, the ice to be used in drinks on the Barbary Coast, and had to settle for a load of piling, timber was the pay crop on Puget Sound. Maynard had some to harvest. There was a stand of fur directly east of his store, so near that the needles fell on his shake roof. He hired Indians to fall and trim and buck the trees. 
They cut the trees with axes and soon learned to cut a high stump. They cut notches in the trees high above the underbrush and away from the worst flow of sap, set boards in the notches, and then, balanced precariously, they hacked away at the great bowls. Some of the lumber was split into shakes, some squared, some cut into cordwood. While this was going on, Maynard set other Indians to catching salmon and making rude barrels, roughly hooped. When Maynard's old friend Captain Felker brought the Franklin Adams to the tiny dock at the edge of Maynard's property that October, the doctor merchant had ready for shipment 1,000 barrels of brined salmon, 30 cords of wood, 12,000 feet of squared timbers, 8,000 feet of piling, and 10,000 shingles. The salmon spoiled, and the loss ate up much of Maynard's profit on the lumber. Nothing dimmed Maynard's enthusiasm for long. The extravagant optimism and exuberant friendliness that had brought about his financial disaster in Ohio made him an ideal pioneer type. Anything that was good for Seattle was good for Maynard, especially since he was one of the largest landholders. Maynard decided that the thing to do was to force up the price of land by making Seattle boom, and the way to do this was to get more population. So, when visitors from Olympia came to town in Indian dugouts or on the square-rigged Two Masters, he would push his octagonal glasses high on his forehead, pull his dark coat over his white shirt, leave his log store, and stroll down to the spit to greet them. At once, he would go into his real estate agent's routine about the future of Seattle. On the day when the settlement's most important visitor arrived, Maynard was down in the sag, helping the other men roll a big log to water. The stranger, a solid-looking man in his forties, came in a dugout. He walked among them unexpectedly, a big-nosed, trim-bearded god of good fortune. His name, he said, was Yesler, Henry Yesler of Massillon, Ohio, and he was looking for a place to build a steam mill. This was the Yesler whom Maynard's friend, Colonel John Weller, had said intended to start a sawmill somewhere in Oregon. Now here he was, hunting a site. He had inspected New York Alki across the bay and found it promising. Of course, this side of the bay looked good too, but the best land on this side was taken. The ideal place for a mill would be right on the spit, where Maynard had set the Indians to salting salmon. The spit had level ground with deep water alongside, but this was Maynard's property and Boren's, and they had already done some clearing. Of course, they wouldn't want to give up cleared land, that was understandable. Well, it was a pleasure to have met them, and he wished the town well. Yesler strode back toward his dugout to return to Alki for another look. Maynard and Boren went into a quick conference. A mill meant jobs for citizens, it meant regular calls by the lumber ships, and that in turn meant the population would grow. A mill meant the land would be cleared rapidly. Property values would rise. No other town on the Sound had a steam mill. There was a water-driven rig at Tumwater built by Mike Simmons, but it cut boards half an inch thicker at one end than at the other. The town that got Yesler's steam mill would have a toehold on the future. There was only one thing to do, and Maynard and Boren did it. They told Yesler he could have the strip of waterfront where the Maynard and Boren claims joined. Yesler agreed, and Seattle got the mill. Again, the stakes were lifted and the claim sites marked off anew. Maynard made the biggest sacrifice, giving up the best section of his waterfront. Yesler took an umbrella-shaped claim with a narrow handle of land reaching up between Boren's and Maynard's holdings, then spreading over the timberland on top of what is now Capitol Hill. While Yesler was in California arranging for the shipment of his machinery, the townsfolk built a big open shed of planks to house the boiler and the saw and a cookhouse of logs for the mill hands. The paper in Olympia remarked, quote, We have heretofore neglected to notice the fact that there is a new steam mill in process of erection by Mr. H. L. Yesler at Seattle, mouth of the Duwamish River, and which, we are told, will be ready to go into operation early in November. And, no mistake, huzzah for Seattle. It would be folly to suppose that the mill will not prove as good as a gold mine to Mr. Yesler, 
besides tending greatly to improve the fine town site of Seattle and the fertile country around it, by attracting thither the farmer, the laborer, and the capitalist. On with improvement, unquote. That was Maynard's idea, too. As he cleared land, he sold it cheap, expecting to make his profit off the later sale of his remaining property. He gave one of the best lots in town to Captain Felker for $20 and a promise that Felker would build a big house on it. He donated two acres to the Methodist missionaries, asking only that they clear it as soon as possible. He was always looking for people who would be useful to the community. Sea captains for prestige and as traveling salesmen. Missionaries for tone. Blacksmiths for skill. He wanted a blacksmith very much. He blamed the failure of his barreled salmon enterprise on faulty coopering. And when none answered an advertisement he put in the Olympia Columbian, he set up a blacksmith shop of his own. He was not a good hand with an anvil. One day, a visitor from the White River Valley stood by the open door of Maynard Smithy, watching him work. The stranger kept shaking his head. "'What's the matter?' Maynard asked at last. "'You don't know much about this kind of work, do you? Could you do better?' Maynard asked sharply. "'It's my trade,' the man said. Maynard sold him the shed and equipment, title clear for ten dollars. Maynard preached the gospel of Seattle's certain greatness not only to his neighbors, but in every community where he could find listeners, and especially in Olympia." the biggest town north of the Columbia River. He was continually going up the Sound by canoe to visit the widow Brashears at Olympia. Years later, in their reminiscences, several pioneers recalled their astonishment at seeing, as they camped on some wilderness beach under the shadow of the dark firs, a dugout manned by Indian paddlers and carrying a large, dapper man in a dark suit with white linen and black tie, sometimes talking the jargon with his paddlers, sometimes peering through octagonal glasses at a leather-bound book. Maynard became quite an authority on dugout travel. He usually advised travelers to take along a large supply of hardtack, because if the wind shifted, they might be pinned down on some beach for days before their sailish paddlers would risk setting out again. Travel overland was even more difficult and costly. One of the men who reached Seattle a few months after Maynard estimated that it cost him $250 to bring his family from Salem, Oregon. They went by wagon from Salem to Portland, then on to the Tualatin Plain, where they boarded a boat and crossed the Columbia to St. Helens. They loaded the wagon on a scow and went down the Columbia to the Cowlitz, where they took the wagon apart and packed the pieces in canoes for the upstream paddle to Cowlitz Landing. One of the men drove the horses overland. At the landing, the wagon was put back together for the drive through the forest to Olympia. From that point, the women took the boat north. The men drove the wagon to Stillicum, where they again disassembled it for transport in dugouts the final 30 miles to Seattle. The horses were left to graze at Stillicum. When one of the men returned for them, he got lost and wandered for two days in the Puyallup and Duwamish valleys until he reached Seattle half-starved. We'll stop there. In Episode 4, we'll pick up where we left off. We're still in Chapter 1, Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852-1873. It's the housebound historian, and we're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published by Viking in 1951. I'm Felix Bunnell.